So Mark Hicks, my very close friend and collaborator on many, many things, welcome to Gold Digging. Thank you. Gold Digging's really about kind of introducing some of the people that I work with, uh, either collaboratively, professionally, or I socialise with, um, who just become in the end part of, I think, what Stephen Webster is, what our company is, our philosophies, our everything we believe in and, and the people that um, surround that and are part of it. Yes, yeah, so Mark Hicks, for those who don't know, obviously is one of our great British chefs. He, without a doubt, has, uh, I want to say, kind of redefined what, what being a British chef is um, from his ingredients and his takes on, on things considered as to be British. So we talked a bit about the fact that we met through a mutual artist friend and that we've, we've done quite a few things together that, that just seem to have worked really well. Yeah, most of them are quite sort of natural things, aren't they? Really. Collaborations, whether it be art, food, yeah, getting drunk. <laughs> yeah, all of the above. But I, I think some of the sort of memorable things for me have been taking you out to LA uh, to cook for a Stephen Webster event. I mean, it was actually for Matt Collishaw, the artist. Yeah, but... and we did the Last Supper dinner. What was it again? Well, I know what we ended with, which really was the, the I want to say the icing on the cake, but it was kind of the jelly the in the mould. Yeah, so the absinthe jelly was something that, one of those things I, I thought about for art parties, because obviously the, the Van Gogh thing and all the artists used to drink absinthe. Yeah. And it used to get them into all sorts of trouble. So when I think the first, the very first one I ever did, it was a Whitechapel show post dinner in this church. And we did uh, these big absinthe jellies in the middle of the table. And I found some rubber ears <clears throat> in a joke shop. So we set the rubber ear in the, in the jelly and put a light underneath. And then we turned the lights down in the room and the waiters come in with these flashing absinthe jellies with the ear in. And uh, it became a bit of a sort of, you know, a must-have art party dessert. So... The ones you did for us were, the mould was a brain. Yeah, so after that first one I did, I found these brain moulds in... They're, they're actually in the pound shop in Notting Hill. <laughs> they got better out. So <laughs> I saw them and immediately I thought, that's what the absolute jelly is going to go in from now on. But you did gold leaf in it. Which was, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I changed it? it according to the, um, yeah. <laughs> the event. And people were blown away by it. Just this thing, well, first of all, this green brain coming out. And then all the gold, which sort of suspended in it, didn't all sink to the bottom. It was, mm. it was in, I suppose that's the way you kind well, of we set it on different stages. Yeah, exactly. But the funny thing is, even the people that aren't drinking eat the absinthe jelly. And for the main course, we had your signature chicken. But it's the way you serve them up on a spike. Yeah. Feet first. It's the first thing you see. You don't really look at it and go, chicken, oh, it's got some feet on it. You go, feet, there's a chicken underneath it. It's kind of a, it's quite provocative, let's face it. Because you know, a lot of people's idea of refinement is to make it look, you know, ridiculously fancy and poncy. I know. Too much going on. But for me, you know, the refinement element is actually not really messing around with it too much. And just, it's about flavour and presentation. Yeah.
Let's talk about halving because it was a big deal for me to make something that wasn't a piece of jewellery. Um, and I knew nothing about carving. I knew nothing about knives and blades, but I felt that I could apply the bit that I did know, which was basically the handle. They were amazingly made, making them in bronze, depicting all the animals that we eat. I found a forge in Peckham, which you could say, why is Peckham good with blades? And then you think about it and think, well, probably makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but these, For the these guys, yeah, these guys, the Blenheim Forge, were just three young guys I found under a railway arch, if you like, and, uh, and they make my blades. So I learned a lot about blades. But, but you kind of helped me define that, a blade and what a chef uses. Mm. And that was fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you know, knives are interesting. And actually, it's funny how, you know, when I was at college, you know, they would have been completely different blades than what they sort of turned into. You know, they were always made of um, soft carbon steel. And then everyone had stainless blades and then Japanese knives came in. And now the sort of artisan knives are really popular. Everyone's yeah. an artisan knife. When do you think... A chef started to look at like Damascus steel, you know, the, the folding technique, which which we associate. Yeah, I think that came from the sort of flood of Japanese knives on the market. You know, in Soho, there's even a Japanese yeah. knife shop. So I think that you know the the Japanese knife thing was the thing I think that started it off. And those you know beautiful looking blades that were all sort of folded and forged. Yeah. Um, and then I think that probably prompted people that were. Um, you know, blacksmiths or whatever to start making knives because they're, you know, they're a valuable thing that lasts a lifetime. Is it the most important tool to a chef? Yeah, I think it is. It's um, more than your kind of cuisine art or... Uh, yeah, I think, you know, the knife, it's like a carpenter or yeah. whatever, you know, the tools are an important part of the job. And I think having, you know, having something that feels good in the hand or on display in your kitchen, you know, is important. Also, they're quite a personal thing knives you know it drives me mad with a lot of my chefs you know their knives are blunt and they end up using a bread knife to chop things up with which is completely the wrong knife for the job but i think if you look after your knives you know like a carpenter looking after his chisels you know it makes yeah the job easier oh 100 percent, and more, more accurate you know the chopping and everything i think this idea of of Things going a bit backwards to, to really the connection of, of, um, of where, where everything originates mm. is really what we're talking about. And when I came down to your food festival and you had the, uh, the bycatch tacos and I loved that whole idea of, um, I mean, you can talk us through it, but, but the, it was like the lucky dip of of uh, of what comes out yeah well, I, yeah i mean i felt this year because you know i do cookery demonstrations with other chefs and then we had a little stand and i you know i i use the local fishermen you know when when the weather's good you know i buy you know the majority from local fishermen because we're able to change the menu every day and you know unfortunately a lot of the local fishermen if they're netting for you know sea bass or whatever 
they end up throwing a lot of the fish away that's caught in the nets, whether it be a crab, where they smash the claws off and it ends up going back in the ocean, or smaller fish that, you know, they can't really sell on the market. So I've started taking a lot of that fish off them. But supporting, you know, those, those local fishermen, especially with things that they wouldn't normally get money for, you know, goes towards saving what's left in the ocean as well. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're feeding people with bycatch or an element of bycatch, that means, you know, some of the other fish, the more popular stuff is... Less pressure. Yeah. But it also can be really fun. And I think that that was the perfect example of that. When we were fishing in Miami, we, we caught a bycatch. We did. <laughs> it was such a bycatch that we were going to throw it back. <laughs> well, we did throw the first two back. Yeah, but they lived. They yeah. weren't like dead. They just were on a hook and they lived. But the third one was too big to throw back, wasn't it? Yeah, and he said it's one of the best eating fish after he'd watched us throw two back. It was very funny because uh, you want to talk a bit about bone fishing because it's, it's a real yeah, so bone, Yeah, so bone fishing is one of those, you know, ultimate sports, if you like. If you're a fisherman and you, you, you go trout fishing, you know, fly fishing for trout and stuff, you know, the ultimate thing is to go for bonefish, which swim in these very shallow, like two, three foot of water. And it's super clear, crystal yeah, clear. Yeah, and you have to fish by sight, so you have to see them coming, cast at the fish in exactly the right place. And once you hook one, they travel, they swim like ten times faster than the trout. So that's, that's the sport element of it. And, you know, it takes a lot of line off your wheel. And we caught three or four fish that not, none of them were a bonefish. No. They were a, they were well, a the box. water was cloudy, so we, we weren't able to see anything. So we were casting at nothing, really. Yeah. But luckily these, these um, boxfish were... A boxfish, which this is the weirdest looking fish. It's got great big eyes. They look a bit like a horse's massive eyes. And, and it's awkward looking. A bit like a puffer fish without spines. It's like a yeah, they're, shape. They're in a protected shell, aren't they? Yeah, yeah and, and, it, and it's got a tiny little tail and little flippers, so it looks a bit odd. And, but he put up a fight. Put up a real fight. Could really pull that box fish, couldn't it? <laughs> and we bought one back. I don't know why she didn't have a sharp knife. <laughs> She's gone since in Miami. She said it's because she, we hadn't been there long and she hadn't had a chance to build up her kitchen, but... Yeah, when it, I mean, you had really shit knives at home. I know. They're like kitchen level equivalent. I'm surprised you didn't cut yourself. But we had to use a bread knife, but it was a really bad bread knife as well to cut through the, the shell of the fish. And then in the end, I just put my hand in it and pulled out the fillet. Because it's, it's skeleton, is its shape, isn't it? So rather than it being like meat, it mm. kind of looked a bit right. like cod's row. Mm. It was pink, but it was It was, pink. yeah, sort of, but it had a monk, monkfishy texture. Yeah. And you made, was that? Well, there's this classic dish called, uh, um, well, it, it, uh, it was a combination of this dish called Chicken Maryland, which is chicken and corn salsa and that sort of stuff, and then this this old classic dish which was called Soul Caprice, which was a fried banana. So I did a combination of the two things. We had yeah. the piece of fish, a fried plantain, and I made yeah. a salsa with corn and yeah. peppers. And that bit of box fish. Mm. I don't know anyone else that's ever eaten no, a boxfish. I never met anyone who's eaten one. But it was worth eating. 
But if you if you catch something and eat it, that's just a great way of, you know, some farm to table if you like, but but yeah, to yeah. table. Yeah. You know, yeah. Back to what, what sort of established you and and uh, and your passion for food and being a great chef. It's been, I'm sure, a little bit about breaking down some of the rigidity that surrounds what what it means to be a great chef. Do you, um, yeah, yeah, no, no, I think you know everyone needs to push the boat out, but we've all got different ideas of how you know how it should be done. I mean, I was brought up you know by the seaside, so I was I was brought up on you know going out and catching mackerel and prawns off the end of the pier and just taking them home and you know cooking them up very simply so that that has still sort of stayed with me you know my, my granddad used to grow sort of prized chrysanthemums and tomatoes and sometimes supper was you know some tomatoes from the greenhouse with a chunk of bread sarsen's vinegar you know no chrysanthemums no chrysanthemums <laughs> yeah. could have done it if, if we'd have known what we know now you'd put them in there yeah but, but yeah but that's you know and that stays on the menu you know today i still use sarsen's vinegar on my tomato salad rather than using some fancy you know balsamic vinegar or something that's interesting I, i've had this debate with my daughters about ketchup well there's fancy ones and i'm not even going to get involved because you might but they'll go why would you ever want to improve on something that's perfect of course they're talking about Highest tomato ketchup. 20, when I say 20, it was probably 30 years ago, I'd sort of been a jeweler for a, I'd done my time, you know, I'd done my apprenticeship training, I'd been, and I, and I was so, I felt stifled by the rigidity of, of what my industry was. And, you know, I've been, all the time you're learning, you, you kind of go, well, that's, that's what you've got to do. You know, you've got to learn your trade, that's for sure. So it's a bit like having sort of a, a classical training. And, then, and then, you, then you think, do I just have, can I only play in this, you know, this pond, if you like, and, and you want to break out of it. And, and starting, I just felt I needed to express myself, a bit of myself uh, at it you know, in my trade, if you like, my, my craft, because I, I, knew, I knew how to make jewellery. I, I probably wasn't anything I couldn't make, but I wanted to make something different. And I got a massive amount of pushback. Surprising, I thought. But then when I think about it, or when I thought about it a bit later, it's like, well, what? Of course you're going to get pushback. No one really wants to change. Mm. They don't want to look at something and go, oh, my God, that's, that's a whole new way of looking at what we do. Therefore... We want to be part of it. They're, they tried to push it away, you know. Um, well, now it's done and dusted, and, and thankfully, there's, uh, you know, you, you've got more opportunity now by being a little bit disruptive than, than if you're not. Um, and it's not that that all came from me, but it certainly would have been myself and like-minded people who just <coughs> wanted to say, this fine jewellery doesn't have to be rooted in the Victorian times or something, it can mm. be a bit more uh, relevant to a war. I think that's a lot of our, you know, the relationships that you and I have with artists as well, you know, because a lot of them are the, the bad guys, aren't they? You know, of the art world. And they would, you know. That's <laughs> funny, that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, that's because you wouldn't want to buy art of someone you didn't like. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Not bad in a bad way, but, no. you know. 
Well, they've 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 been they've been rebellious. They've been disruptive, and I suppose all all great artists will have had a, had a period of that. It's what it's about. Isn't it? We've got a project coming up that brings us back to an artist, Sylvie Weverall, who you introduced me to, and I um, I took a look at her work, and I really, really loved her, her approach. Her husband was a guy, so he's not anymore, but he was a game dealer, and, and yeah. she used to use all the bits that he, you didn't need, like the feathers. And yeah, the... exactly. So she, her, her work has always been about found items, whether it be a carcass of an animal or, you know, game bird heads or... Amazingly beautiful, kaleidoscopic kind of effect of using unlikely elements yeah. and making them... Uh, I suppose it's about the patterns that she creates with, with that. But now with her new project, which you asked me to curate at Hicks in Shoreditch, we're, we're going to put together um, a show of her work, which is, again... About the Last Supper, which is quite weird that it's sort of gone, gone in a big circle. She's making Twelve Disciples and Jesus. I'm incorporating one of my knives, and you're going to be cooking the Last Supper, which was sort of by her request. It kind of had to be, didn't it? Yeah. And, and it's around Easter time. Yeah. It's just a nice three-way collaboration. It is. Yeah. Oh, that was great, Mark. Thank you. Um, we did a bit of gold digging. <laughs>